This episode is brought to you by Core, the brand new non-custodial wallet that offers a seamless and secure experience on Avalanche. You'll hear more about Core later in the show. The capitulation is only just now like the tip of the iceberg. Um, well, so this time around, what was different was not only was it the leverage and the debt, it was access to capital markets. So everyone, their mom was spacking, right? Um, and they raised all this money, but this is completely dried up now. So the capital markets have all the liquidity is gone. And now they've got all this leverage on their books. They need to unwind. And that does take a little bit of time. And I think in the next month or so, I think people are still hoping, holding on to hope that Bitcoin bounces and recovers. If Bitcoin doesn't bounce, um, there will be massive capitulations um, all across the board for different types of miners, big and small. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Empire. Today, we are not doing a roundup. We're skipping the end of week roundup and doing an episode that we think is more important than the roundup this week, which is an episode all about the state of Bitcoin mining. Uh, Kevin, who's one of the guests in this episode, uh, talks about how we are just at the tip of the iceberg for Bitcoin miner capitulation. We thought it was really important to do uh, just a big episode explaining what the hell is going on with Bitcoin miners, uh, especially public Bitcoin miners right now. Uh, and so that's what we did. So I hope you enjoyed this episode with Kevin and Cassie. Uh, let's jump into it. So we have Cassie Clifton, VP of BizDev at Galaxy Digital, and Kevin Zhang, the SVP of Mining Strategy at Foundry. Cassie, Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, yeah of course. All right, guys. So here's, here's, here's what's going on. Uh, 2021, Bitcoin hits this high of 64K, interest rates near all-time lows. Bitcoin miners were reportedly making close to 90% margins at the peak. Miners start signing all these hosting contracts, uh, power purchasing agreements, other operational agreements that were kind of based on these bull market profitability models, right, from 2020 and 2021. Fast forward to, we're recording this uh, mid-July 2022, Bitcoin's down 70%. Miners are starting to liquidate their balance sheets. Margins are compressing. ASICs on fire sale. Uh, are on fire sale. I think a good place to go with this, I want to almost with this episode, like tell the story of what of what's been happening. So instead of talking about the now and trying to predict the future by starting at today, let's go back to the beginning of this cycle. So maybe uh, Cassie, if I could pick on you, um, can you take us back to the start of this bull market going back to like March uh, April, May, June, July of 2020, the market starts to heat up. What goes into the mind of someone running a mining company as we're as we start to lead up into a uh, a bull market? Yeah, um, I mean, I think there's a lot of things going on. I think people are getting excited that you know things are starting to finally defrost after a long winter. You know, they realize that at this point they've made it to the other side. Um, you know. You hear time and time again throughout these cycles that like the number one thing that you can do is just to stay alive. And like oftentimes your company has to change pretty dramatically for you to be able to do so. Um, and so these companies are starting to think about what growth looks like again. Um, you know, it's not just like survival mode. So they're they're starting to think about, okay, well, how do I leverage the assets that I have? Like what does the next the next phase of, of mining look like for our company? Um, you know, we have X amount of time left until the next halving. Like the name of the game is time, like time is money right now. So how do I get as much hash rate online as quickly as possible. Um, and so you see people, you know, whether they're going out and they're raising, you know, debt equity facilities or, um, you, you know, whatever whatever their, their mode of acquiring capital is, um, they're going out there and they're trying to get online as quickly as possible. 
Um, you know, at the same time, over the last couple of years, we've really seen debt come into this market in a way that it wasn't here prior. Um, this is this is relatively new. Um, and so, you know, it's access to debt. People kind of went crazy. They just got like levered to the nines. And, and now they're kind of facing the ramifications of that, of like, you know, they were long Bitcoin mining Bitcoin. They were long Bitcoin hodling Bitcoin. And they were like ultra long Bitcoin taking out loans against their operations that they could only pay if number went up. Um, and so we're, we're still seeing a lot of people anticipate number go up um, or hoping number go up to be able to, to continue to fund their operations right now. Companies got drunk on debt. I think that's a good, I think that's a good almost framework to look at it. Um, if you look back at like 2017, 2016, 2017, 2018, the mining markets didn't have so much debt involved in them. Now you basically have a lot of facilities that will lend out to these miners. Why are, so sticking with like 2020 here, the start of the, the cycle, you had the halving in 2020, uh, in, excuse me, in May of 2020, if I remember correctly. So what's happening at this at this period of time? It's like summer of 2020. Are miners rushing to find financing by okay? So you've got debt. You've got they're going public and they want to find financing to do what to to order ASICs to find mining sites. Kevin, what were what do you do with this capital? Yeah, so I love this question because um, it's it's kind of uh, timing is everything in our industry, right? And uh, unfortunately, a lot of miners and a lot of uh, actors they kind of mistime things or they the little either too early or too late um when we kind of made a big bet early in 2020 that the market's going to recover um, we ordered a lot of machines especially from micro vt and this was actually around march so this is back during the COVID crash across all markets but especially in the crypto and bitcoin markets um we were able to actually time and buy the bottom uh, we sat down with um, mike collier our ceo and barry and we made a big decision to order I think at the time it was like 28,000 M30Ss because we knew that if we wanted to launch a financing business, we had to have machines coming in. Back then, ASICs were also scarce and hard to uh, kind of source. Um, the issue was from March all the way through May, the halving, mining economics, economics only got worse. So no one wanted these miners. So we actually had to uh, rethink and re-strategize our business where we had these miners that if no one's going to be purchasing from us, whether it's just with cash or with financing, we had to mine with these ourselves. So we started deploying these miners at various different sites in anticipation that some of these sites and some of these kind of hosting providers, they'll have customers and they themselves may be interested in buying the miners from us. So it really wasn't until towards the end of summer when people were finally convinced that, oh, mining economics are turning around and Bitcoin, it always baffles me. People always feel worried around having like, will Bitcoin survive? Like, come on guys, it's been <laughs> already been a couple of halvings, right? So yes, it will survive. But um, the fear is still in the, a lot of the investors at that time. So uh, people usually wait two to three months. And as the economics BTC price recovers, um, the only then are people looking to actually procure miners. And like Cassie said, the difference this time around was people really took advantage of leverage. Hmm. You guys are going to have to bear with me as I ask some some potentially uh, uh, fifth grade level questions here. What are the, uh, Cassie, what are the... Kevin's, Kevin's saying that it, it wasn't profitable, it wasn't economical to get these miners, to get these miners online in like maybe March or, or, or April or May of 2020. And it wasn't maybe until the end of the summer that it became economical. What are the, here's the fifth grade level question, like what are the inputs for a Bitcoin miner that make it economical? What are the hash rate, price of ASICs, price of Bitcoin? Like what are the inputs here and how do you make that calculation? Yeah. Um, and Kevin, you chime in here too. I would say the, the number one differentiator, at least that we see, 
um, kind of when we're modeling things out for ourselves and, and you know other companies that we're looking at extending credit to um, is the cost of power. And unfortunately, in 2020, we were at historical all-time low power costs, and now we're like verging on all-time high power costs. So the coin has really flipped. Um, you know, and the other thing is, and these are these are power costs of of electricity. Exactly. Yeah. So that's really the okay. number one differentiator between you know, not whether or not you're going to make it, like, obviously there's a little bit more nuance there, but like the number one differentiator to like, can you build a sustainable mining model is your, your input cost of power. Um, and so thinking about it, like, you, you know, maybe you can get a contract, but in order to get a contract, typically you need a deposit sometimes of around 20% um, of like the overall cost, overall cost over the term. Um, so that's like difficult to come up with. And then you have the massive like CapEx expenditure of, you know, the miners themselves. Um, and then that hasn't even like, you haven't even gotten to like the infrastructure part of the site. Um, if that's not already provided or you're not just like using a, a quick container solution, but then you still have to think about like the step down and, you know, the, the wiring. And so there are just a lot of different components and then you need the qualified people. So there's, you know, there's barriers to entry and, and CapEx and, and you're in a situation where you've like just defrosted and, and now you're starting to think about those things. So like you need someone else's help to get off the ground. Yeah. So I think uh, Cassie hit the nail on the head. Um, it's obviously the, the one component that everyone harps on is electrical rates, right? What is your cost of power? But the one thing that most people underestimate uh, is the cost to actually bring that power online into pluggable energized slots for the ASICs. Um, it's the site development, it's the procurement, it's the permitting, and then it's the timing too, right? So just because you find a cheap, affordable project with a reasonable CapEx, and these can be anywhere from uh, 250,000 to half a million, and you're, sometimes you're pushing 750K per megawatt um, in CapEx, and that's only for the infrastructure. Um, if it takes you six to nine months to bring online, that's six to nine months where your ACFs can't plug in and none of your capital that you borrowed is working for you. Sticking with the question of just inputs on cost for a second, electricity costs, these are what driven by like weather conditions and regulations and the transmission systems and the cost of running a power plant. Is that? So it, it's a variety of different things. And it's all, I think it all comes down to where your physical location is, right? Um, across the U.S., you have many different grids, right? Um, you have different states and jurisdictions, some with regulated and some with others with deregulated markets. Uh, Bitcoin miners tend to go to deregulated markets because they can choose who they purchase power from, uh, they go to the lowest cost competitor. But what we're seeing nowadays, especially, is that there are geopolitical macro risks to electrical rates, right? Um, the input costs of natural gas and oil and everything else, that eventually translates into what uh, the electrical rates that miners are paying for. That's really interesting. Okay, so... Let's go back to the timeline. We've got like summer of 2020. These things start getting, uh, it starts to become profitable again to mine, right? Price of Bitcoin, what uh, March March 12th of 2020, What I think the price hit like 3,500 bucks that day or 4,000, yeah. ends up starting to climb. By summer, we're at like 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15K. Price starts climbing. What? So people are people are basically what racing to buy these ASICs. And then once you, and, and that takes how long? It takes six months to get A6. It takes 12 months to get A6. What do you do here, Cassie? You just basically, you call up a, you call up a, there's what, a couple vendors that sell A6. You call them up and you say, I want to put in an order for like 50 million A6. How does this actually, how does this go down? Yeah, I think, and, and Kevin, you guys can, you guys actually have a business around this, so you're probably better suited to, to speak to this than I am. Um, but there's really a couple different ways that it can go down. I would say at that point, like we didn't have the secondary ASIC market like as strong as it is today. Like there weren't quite as many secondary purchase orders floating around. And so, yeah, for the most part, you were either going to a handful of um, secondary procurement providers or you were going straight to manufacturers 
And lead times really varied just depending on the machines that you were trying to get your hands on. Um, and then obviously, like there were some some real sub- supply chain constraints uh, during COVID time. So, um, you know, you could have been looking at anywhere from, from six to 12 months. Um, and obviously, you have to come up with some sort of deposit there. So um, you're looking at, at putting money down that's not going to be going to work to you uh, for you for, you know, six to 12 months. So, um yeah, so if uh, if we take a step back and kind of address why Foundry is even formed and what our kind of mission was, it's to um, proliferate and help institutional adoption of Bitcoin mining, especially here in the States, right? Um, at the time, this was early 2020 and summer 2020, um, one of the key risks for kind of getting people interested in mining at an institutional level here in North America was one that it's controlled by China uh, or it's bad for the environment, right? So we'll ignore the ESG environment piece of it. But at that time, much of the mining hash rate was located in China, both physically and virtually on the software layer. Um, I would say 67% of the global network was physically based in facilities across China. And then upwards of 90% of the hash rate was being collected and aggregated on pools based out of China. So um, when when Cassie says there wasn't a vibrant market, and uh, she's referring to outside of China. So the secondary markets and everything, everything was very fluid in China. But we wanted to kind of decentralize the ecosystem and help build things elsewhere, especially in our backyard here in North America. Um, so back then really was it was a fight and a scramble to procure ASICs uh, because a lot of it was being gobbled up by resellers or by miners within China. Um, so we had a large part in kind of scooping up our allocation. And a lot of that came back to the big bet we made back in March when we had confidence and we wanted to be contrarian thinking that the market will recover and there needed to be ASICs coming into North America. It strikes me that one of the biggest differences from maybe 18 months ago versus today is that in the bull market, the ability to get your hands on ASICs and mining rigs was this massive bottleneck, perhaps. Now, you fast forward 18 months, there's this, what I think is a big ASIC surplus from just talking to a few folks in the market, and prices of ASICs are starting to fall 50 to 70% from their you know 2021 highs. Is that a fair categorization? I would say so. Yeah, I definitely think that this is a surplus. Um, and, and it's one to the extent that I don't believe we've seen one quite like this. And this is like leverage plays a large role in this. Um, we're kind of unwinding all of that leverage and and like people use money that they didn't really have and they definitely don't have now to, to buy these machines. And so that's coming full circle. Um, so we're this the secondary market stronger than ever. <laughs> so, folks, when you when you're buying ASICs, like how much of that can get bought with debt? Or I guess how much do you have to, yeah, how much do you have to prepay and what does that contract look like? Maybe, Kevin, if I could throw this to you. Sure. So uh, it's constantly changing, both on the manufacturer's purchase orders, right? So back in 2020, um, these were still spot or- orders or future orders where people were depositing X amount of dollars, usually 30 to 40, sometimes even 50% to get units purchased in the future or they pay 100% and they get units right away. Um now, uh, Bitmain and MicroBT, they learn from past mistakes where they have massive upfront costs and CapEx in having to make their deposits and payments towards uh, the foundries or the chip manufacturers. So they started in, uh, debuting their annual contracts. This was a whole new thing this cycle where people were paying anywhere from 25 to 30% upfront six months in advance. And then a couple months before delivery, they pay another third of the uh, per- entire purchase order. And then right before delivery, they pay that remaining piece of 25 or 30%. Um, and for us financing providers, um, based off of kind of um, money economics at the time and how close we were towards the next halving, 
Um, we're off- obviously offering different tenors, but our rates and our LTVs are changing. So when mining, uh, well, when the entire ecosystem started defrosting and when mining economics started turning around, we were very aggressive with our LTV, right? Um, we were only looking for 20% collateral, so it was 80% LTV. Uh, but nowadays, like, for one, we actually stopped financing towards the end of last year because we got really worried with where mining economics are heading, uh, how much leverage was in the system, and the fact that we're only two years away from the next halving. Uh, but towards the end, our LTVs got down to 50%, uh, and that's a big change from 80% they were previously. Hmm. I think we took a bit of a, yeah. a different approach there, um, at least on the LTV front. And obviously, like, you know, everyone had this in mind where, like, the V is, is really fluctuates a lot in the, the loan to value calculation, right? Because, like, first of all, you had lenders who were looking at it, you know, as a, the purchase price of the machines and they were ascribing that as the value. Um, and then you had lenders like us and, and Foundry who were looking at it as the fair market value. But then how do you really calculate the fair market value? Is it what it's trading for on the secondary market? Is it what if, if you bought it new? Is it what the liquidation value is? And how do you, like, how do you define the liquidation value of, let's say, if you're underwriting a a loan for forty thousand against forty thousand ASICs, like that's really difficult because putting forty an additional forty thousand ASICs onto the secondary market, like that's going to further suppress it. Um, so those are all things that you have to consider, and it's like it's very nuanced, and there's not really any like one size fits all for miners, and so it really is just dependent on like the overall view of each individual miner, um, which is why it's it's tough for that product to be you know one where you can do it in a week. It, it takes probably like six weeks. And then by that time, sometimes mining conditions have changed and you have to go back to the drawing board. So let's fast forward the timeline. We're, we're mm-hmm. telling the story of all of this unfolding, right? Let's let's maybe fast forward a year into the cycle. So now it's maybe March of 2021. Bitcoin has ripped higher. It's gone up 20x. We hit that first top. Remember, we had the we had two tops up at 60K. We hit the first top of 60K around, if I remember correctly, it was like March of 2021. Uh, miners are, I'm sure at this point, absolutely scrambling to just get more supply. They want more ASICs. They want more mining sites. They're racing. They're taking out as much debt as possible. They're loading up the balance sheet, loading up the truck. Um, are they also selling Bitcoin when they get Bitcoin? Or is this when the psychology of just being a Bitcoin hodler kind of comes into play and you're like, all right, well, like I know my treasury management solution. I know I should technically be selling here. I know that's probably the wise thing, but like I'm also a Bitcoiner. I'm a, I also like to hodl Bitcoin. So it's really tough for me to sell here because super cycle, Bitcoin going to the moon, we're going to rip past 100K. Like what? I'm not sure who to throw this question to. Yeah, <laughs> yes. exactly. So stock to flow model plan. <laughs> <laughs> Plan B is posting on Twitter that this thing is going to go to a million dollars. You you'd have to be an idiot to sell your Bitcoin here. So, Cassie, what were what like? All right, so March of twenty twenty one. What are what are the miners doing with their Bitcoin? And maybe the second question there is like, what should they have been doing with their Bitcoin? Yeah. Um, well, I think you know a lot of the the public press releases and statements that have been made today really give us a, a, a pretty pretty good view into like what they were doing a couple years ago or last year rather at the, the height of the the, the cycle um, you know it's very clear that they were hodling their stack um, and you know I, I think that the reason for this is that they're bitcoiners through and through so like this becomes an emotional journey for them and when you invest and you're emotional about your investments like you just don't tend to make very good rational decisions um, you know, and, and the ramifications can be can be really, really important, especially when you're taking on leverage. So, um, Kevin, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts there, too. 
I agree with everything you said. The, the one piece I'll add into that was also different about this cycle was uh, the public markets were much more welcoming to the Bitcoin miners too. And I also think there was a lot of uh, inefficiency and ignorance from the retail investor when it came to Bitcoin miners, right? So um, a lot of Bitcoin miners and these companies, these firms, not only did they get greedy thinking and emotional thinking that we need to hold Bitcoin on our balance sheet, um, they were really swayed by the kind of the sailor approach, right? Where not only are we mining Bitcoin at cheaper costs, um, we're now have to hold it on our balance sheet. And they were rewarded for it in the short term, right? A lot of these valuations for mining companies, if you compare with how much hash rate they had online and what their actual cash flow was against their actual market cap was, was ludicrous, right? Um, these were insane multiples, uh, but the, it, they weren't punished for it at the time. So to raise more capital and kind of really pump their valuation to public markets, uh, they were incentivized to kind of hold more Bitcoin on their balance sheet. Um, so that was something that was very unique uh, during this cycle. Uh, what percentage of Bitcoin, what, what, percent, what percentage of the Bitcoin inflow into a company were they selling? And what percentage of, a, of Bitcoin inflow into a miner should they have been selling? Does that question make sense? Yeah. Um, so with the benefit of hindsight, right? One of the easiest strategies to kind of Bitcoin mine is to look at it as a cash flow business. Don't get attached to the fact that you're mining Bitcoin and you got to be a hodler and you're, you're going to be a mini micro strategy, right? Um, it's, it's actually pretty responsible to kind of sell Bitcoin as you're mining. Now, you can take some short-term kind of uh, derivatives and strategies like covered calls. They're going to be selling anyways. May as well sell it at a small premium. Like you can, you can get fancier uh, with some structured products there. But for the most part, this business is so cash flow intensive. You got to make sure that you have enough to cover your ongoing costs as well as your future costs, right? Because it's, it's very volatile and it can be very fickle as we've seen in kind of more recent ones. Um, but at the time, what happened was when people were holding on, on their balance sheets, they were only just selling enough to make their OPEX, which is their electrical costs and their, and their tiny overhead, right? Um, they were hodling most of their coins and they were bragging about it publicly because they, once again, they were rewarded for it. Price is at 60K. Uh, it's March of 2021. Let's let's continue fast forwarding this timeline. We start getting into, uh, so where, where we're sitting at is people are loading up the dump truck with debt, right? Uh, they're buying ASICs like crazy. They're trying to expand their mining sites and they're getting all this Bitcoin, but instead of selling the Bitcoin to maybe predict out cash flows in the future and predict out expenses, they're kind of just selling the minimum amount of Bitcoin necessary. Take me forward to maybe the start of the bear market, Cassie. Uh, this market peaked out in November of 2021. December happens, January happens. Uh, market starts to turn a little bit. In inflation is coming. We start to see that in uh, interest rates are gonna start rising. What what do these miners start doing? Do they correct course or is what we're seeing today the result of these miners not correcting course quickly enough? Um, you know, I think it's really difficult because like, if you were to look back in, in 2020 and you were to think about like, what's the logical thing to happen in this market, given the amount of like money printing going on, you would have thought rampant inflation, right? And there was like a bit of a, a lag there, right? And so the, with the delay, people probably kept thinking the same thing, like, oh, inflation isn't coming at the same rate, like we're going to continue to delay, like rates are going to continue to be as low as they are. But then rates started going up and inflation starts to kick in. Um, and the economy starts to turn around, like a major war breaks out. Um, and so there, there are all these different factors that are like macro backlays that are like affecting the you know traditional and, and, and Bitcoin and crypto markets um, that like start to play out that really people just didn't think were going to happen, um, reasonably so, because it had been several years and they hadn't started happening yet. Um, and so you have that happen and, you know, you have 
the this spike like right before the ETF announcement, right, um, in October. And so people think that that's like a short-term high, but that we're still on the up and up, like stock to flow is still going to happen. Um, and so they're still thinking that prices are going up. And like no one is really realizing that we're in a bear market until probably like the last 60 days or so has it really started to sink in for everyone like, oh, it's actually here. Um, like I have to start preparing for winter. Um, and by that time, if you wait until you're in the bear market to prepare, for most people, it's too late unless you like have a massive treasury um, or, you've, or you've left some cash on your balance sheet. Um, so now this is kind of the, the luck that you're stuck with, stuck with trying to figure out like how do you make it work in this market. All right, folks, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Avalanche and Ava Labs. They have just dropped a new crypto wallet called Core. You're going to be hearing a lot about it over the coming months. You can now be one of the first to try it out. Here's the reason I'm excited to partner with them on Empire. Right now, crypto wallets and browser extensions, they feel clunky, they feel non-intuitive. That's why Ava Labs built Core. It's a free, non-custodial browser extension that gives Avalanche users a seamless and secure Web3 experience across the entire Avalanche ecosystem. Here are a few reasons to try Core. Here's what I'm experimenting with. Number one, Core has intuitive dashboards with a unified display for all of your NFT collections, all your crypto assets. You can execute asset swaps directly inside the wallet. It's a really nice experience. Uh, maybe you want to earn yield or borrow against your Bitcoin, uh, but you don't want to do it on one of those C5 platforms right now. Core's native bridging functionality makes it really easy to bridge your Bitcoin to Avalanche's robust DeFi ecosystem. Last but not least, Core makes on-ramping super easy. You can convert dollars to crypto right now using the MoonPay integration. Just takes a few clicks. Download Core today using the link in the show notes. It's really, really nice. Uh, if you are interested in the Avalanche ecosystem at all, you have to be using Core. Download Core using the link below. Now, let's get back to the show. So I think the one big thing we kind of glossed over uh, too quickly was um, during... April and May of 2021, this is when uh, the China bans were coming around, right? And mm. at the time, there was there was a lot of confusion and skepticism over, will they actually go through it, right? Like, is it this time is different or is it just, it's another threat and they're not going to actually ban it out, et cetera. Um, but I think when the bans actually came through uh, at the end of June, 2021, this is when mining economics and the mining ecosystem really decoupled and became very inefficient compared to the rest of the crypto markets, right? Um, in, in the sense that even though Bitcoin, I think during that summer had dropped from the highs of 60K down to like 30 or so, you had over 50% of the network turn off overnight. So from your uh, mining economic standpoint, you're actually making just as much uh, Bitcoin USD value and cash flow uh, as you were back when Bitcoin was at 60K back in April. And what that did was that gave, I think, a certain Sorry, level. Kevin, fifth, fifth grade question coming here again. Yeah. Explain explain that. Right. So we covered the cost inputs of what miners are looking at with kind of the CapEx and electrical rates. Um, the inputs for their revenue are one, BTC price. And then what is the global hash rate or difficulty? So difficulty is set roughly every two weeks, 2016 blocks based off of how fast or how slow blocks are solved. Um, so when we say global hash rate and difficulty, we're kind of talking about the same thing. Um, so the, the more difficult it is to solve uh, a block, the more hash rates on the network. 
well, when 50 to 60% of the network was based in China and the bans came through and they were enforced very strictly, you had essentially 50% or more of the network or competition fall off. So the people that remained on, namely in North America and other countries outside China, we got to make 50% more revenue and actually it went directly to our bottom line because our costs didn't change either. So for a layman like me, everyone unplugs that a lot of the folks in China unplug the hash rate tanks, it becomes easier to mine Bitcoin or less expensive to mine Bitcoin, it takes less energy to mine Bitcoin. So my output. Um, actually, no, your, your costs are the same, but your revenue gets essentially doubled. It becomes 50% less difficult to mine. So right. statistically, you're, 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 yes. you're finding blocks 50% more frequently. Got exactly. It. Okay. Carry on. You were, I interrupted the story before. <laughs> no. So um, what happened was miners are giving this much bigger cushion that never existed before, right? Um, it never existed before in the sense that 50% of the competition in China, the reason why mining gravitated towards China, and this is going back to this time is different, right? And this goes back to the original China bans that happened back in 2012 and 2013. When they mentioned that they were going to ban Bitcoin, ban Bitcoin mining, then they didn't really follow through with it, right? And what happened was the reason why Western manufacturers failed in 2013, 2014 was no one could be as cost competitive at producing ASICs and miners as China, namely Shenzhen, right? It was just a massive electronics manufacturing hub for the world. So from that 2014 era, China has dominated Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining economics or the industry and ecosystem because of they're so efficient and they're the lowest cost competitor. And when this ban actually came through, all their advantages were kind of plucked away, right? And not only do you have sites coming online now slower, in China, you can build a mining facility in two to three months. In the US, it takes two to three months just to get your permitting in, in order before you even start construction, which takes another six months or so. So you actually have hash rate, not only does it drop 50%, the growth of hash rate becomes really stagnant. So once again, the competition's drops tremendously and miners are then given this extended lifeline where their economics are much more competitive than the rest of the crypto markets. And I think that's why the reality hasn't really set in until miners until more recent months when, oh, actually we are to the point where we're actually starting to capitulate. Whereas the rest of the markets were kind of hit towards um, maybe spring and earlier three, four months ago. That's a really good point. And to some extent, I still think that a lot of people are kind of waiting for hash rate to fall offline so that they can be you know, that much more profitable. Um, and I've been personally very surprised by the lack of hash rate falling off. Um, I thought that we would see a lot more coming offline than, than we have already, but it seems that, that people are really holding on. So the, ha so the hash rate, um, okay, so China ban, what, this was maybe May, mid-May of 2021? This was June 1st, 2021. Okay, hash rate tanks. Miners are like, holy shit, this is amazing. We're uh, we're gonna make more money. Um, but you, don't you expect in your models, if you're a miner, that the hash rate eventually recovers because it's an open market and like the, the miners didn't think that the hash rate was just gonna stay low forever. And if I remember correctly, the hash rate did recover. It just took about maybe six or seven months. Yeah. Um, here's the really fascinating part that I think isn't shared enough uh, about hash rate and kind of. Uh, what's happened since the ban. Actually, I think it was actually at the end of June, 2021. So when that ban took place, 50% of the network came offline, which can also say 50% of the miners came offline. Um, Bitmain and MicroBT and the manufacturers, they didn't stop producing units and the units only got more efficient. So what that's led to is for the market to recover to where it was, all the units that were unplugged eventually were plugged in as well as new miners coming in. Today, 
we still have 30 to 40% of total manufactured hash rate unplugged sitting on the floor. So hash rate could be significantly higher if only there was less bottlenecking when it comes to the infrastructure and the hosting capacity available for these miners. Now, I could also argue less hash rate be online because the economics aren't there. But once again, it was the fact that miners were given this kind of very soft cushion and landing uh, because so much of the competition had fallen off. Um, the bottleneck switched from, it was no longer pro- procuring ASICs, right? The, the fire sales of ASICs actually took place last summer when China banned mining. A lot of miners just gave up, capitulated, and they needed cash or they wanted to cash out. Um, and they sold their miners for the cheap. This time around, the constraints were now on hosting capacity because not only was so much of a shutdown in China, everywhere else in the world is slower to build. Um, so that took a very long time. You mentioned it was like six to seven months. Yeah, it was about that long for Hashwood just to return to the previous highs uh, a year ago. And now we have so many miners offline, both newer generation units coming in, as well as miners that never got plugged back in since the ban. I still talk to people like, you know, every week, maybe every couple of weeks that have like a significant amount of miners offline from China that like are planning to place them in the States. Um, and that was, you know, over a year ago at this point. So what are they doing with the mine? Why? Why? What, are they, what are they doing with them? So the, the thing that you have to think about is like the logistical, there's a logistical nightmare, first of all, of like transporting the machines. Um, and if you do so and you don't yet have a place to put them, then it's kind of just like an additional cost that you're incurring for like no real reason, right? And so if you think about like fuel prices skyrocketing and the cost to, to transport machines, it's like if you're like you're going to assume some losses of machines as well. So you may lose like 10% of your hardware and you move over there only to find another storage venue, um, you know, where you can place them until you then find hosting. So then you have to ship them again. And so people are just holding off, like waiting until they find rack space that's affordable for them somewhere based on like the efficiency of the machine that they have. Let me just repeat it back to you to make sure I understand it. So basically for the first year of the bull market, the ASICs, there's a shortage of ASICs and like getting ASICs might've been the, the constraint on the market. China shuts down mining, all these ASICs flood into the market. It becomes uh, uh, much easier to acquire ASICs. Now the constraint in the market becomes finding a place to actually plug those ASICs into. Is that? Exactly. Okay. That's absolutely, yep. The real like constraint that people are pushing up on right now goes back to the inputs that are important and that's the cost of power. So finding a site where you can lock down cheap power um, and it makes sense for you and you can do so over a long period of time versus just having it fluctuate with the market where you know like, oh, I'm gonna be profitable for X number of years. Um, that's very tough to do right now. Yeah, so, so every site's got its nuances. It's got its own specific timeline it works off of. But if we're going from a very high level we're generalizing in the US, it does take anywhere from nine to 12 months to get a site off the ground from nothing to a fully functioning Bitcoin mine. Um, and I think one of the fascinating components of what happened when China, when the China bans took place was um, obviously miners had to look for other previously deprioritized regions or other regions that have the attributes of a competitive Bitcoin mining environment, namely cheap power, right? And availability to scale uh, and geopolitical uh, friendliness, I guess. Um, but some miners took the risk in the um, the quote unquote easy way out of going to Kazakhstan, right? Kazakhstan during that summer was very welcoming of miners. They loved seeing this burgeoning uh, new industry, uh, lifting up kind of the, the economics and kind of giving them that uh, injection of economic growth. Um, and the reason why a lot of Chinese miners went over to Kazakhstan versus North America is because in Kazakhstan, it's very similar to China where they can build a site also in two to three months. 
and that, a lot of that comes to lack of permitting, lack of uh, process, uh, where things don't have to be UL listed or CE certified. They can use cheaper aluminum instead of copper for a lot of the electrical equipment. So they were able to build up very quickly overnight. The issue was Kazakhstan's infrastructure couldn't take that scale. So the entire country was very imbalanced on power, where so much of the mining was happening in the southern part of Kazakhstan, it was unbalancing their total national grid. So you have Kazakhstan in a matter of like seven to eight months from welcoming miners with open arms with tax incentives to then uh, shutting down miners um, and then charging them additional tax taxation for being a Bitcoin mine that didn't properly register or was consuming too much power without going through the right permitting processes. So a lot of the Kazakhstan mines were then kicked out and now everyone's gravitated mainly to North America. Got it. If I'm kind of summarizing what you guys have told me, miners just had massive expansion. You had facility expansion. You had like you had ASIC expansion. You had honestly company expansion. You had uh, access to capital expansion. Like these companies were going public, right? There is new access to debt. Um, and so just expansion across the board. Now, uh, who was it? Uh, Amanda, uh, Cassie, on your team at Galaxy uh, was speaking at Consensus. She said, out of a sample size of 18 public miners, there are now 1.9 billion in PO liabilities outstanding. Uh, there was a Bloomberg report that there are $4 billion in Bitcoin miner loans coming under stress right now. What is the, maybe walk us through, now it's July, June, July. What is the state of Bitcoin mining today? Because it feels like all of that capital expansion, human capital expansion, facility expansion is now coming due at a time when prices are down 70%. So Cassie, what is like, what is the state of Bitcoin mining today? Yeah, um, you know, you could probably price adjust that $1.9 billion number based on some of the manufacturer downward price adjustments for their purchase orders down to like 1.55 or 1.53 billion. Um, that's still a massive number though for people to have to come up with in this market. Um, you know, I, I think for a lot of people, the unfortunate reality is that, you know, some a lot of the financing was used for purchase orders, obviously. And so what will happen, you know, essentially is that if they're unable to pay the remainder on the purchase order, they either have to try really hard to sell the purchase order to someone um, and try to break even, um, which is they're just not going to break even on the purchase order. Um, or they are going to just lose the purchase order because they're going to go down holding their bag. Um, and then they're going to lose their deposit to the manufacturer. And then they will also burn their relationship with the manufacturer. And that will probably be the reality for a lot of people. Um, I thought that I would see, you know, we obviously see a lot of distressed debt deals come across our desk. Um, can't speak to any of them in particular, but I did think I would see a lot more than I've seen, um, which kind of tells me that like people are still holding on um, to some of those, those POs that are out there. Yeah, so I think this is another symptom of the China ban and miners having a little bit more margin and cushioning than the rest of the larger, not just crypto, but macroeconomics, right? Um, the capitulation is only just now like the tip of the iceberg. Um, well, so this time around, what was different was not only was it the leverage and the debt, it was access to capital markets. So everyone, their mom was spacking, right? Um, and they raised all this money, but this is completely dried up now. So the capital markets have all the liquidity is gone. And now they've got all this leverage on their books. They need to unwind. And that does take a little bit of time. And I think in the next month or so, I think people are still hoping, at, holding on to hope that Bitcoin bounces and recovers. If Bitcoin doesn't bounce, um, there will be massive capitulations um, all across the board for different types of miners, big and small. Tell me more about that, Kevin. So we saw 
I know you guys can't comment on specific companies, but I, I'm, I'm allowed to comment on specific companies. So we saw Core Scientific uh, sold like, I think it was 75% of their Bitcoin. Uh, Bitfarm <laughs> sold about 3,000 Bitcoin. I think that was about 50% of their stake. You, you're saying this is just the tip of the iceberg. Kevin, how bad does, I'm not talking about those two specific companies, but like mm-hmm. as an industry and across the board, how bad does minor capitulation get over these next couple of months if Bitcoin prices remain depressed at around 20K? Right. So if they remain depressed um, and hash rate doesn't readjust, and I don't think it will because it's kind of holding steady where it's at. Uh, the only reason the hash rate difficulty isn't growing this next cycle is because so much of it's shutting off in Texas for curtailment. Um, so what real pain looks like in, uh, is not only is it right now, Bitcoin miners, especially a lot of the public list miners, they still had Bitcoin on their balance sheet that they could sell. They're not going to have that lifeline uh, a month or two from now. They're not going to have Bitcoin to sell for their cash flow needs. Um, and what you're going to have is you're going you're to have to look at a competitive cost stack for what their operating costs or what their electrical rates are. So anyone that's running at seven cents, six cents, these are going to be the people that capitulate first. They're going to be the ones that are unplugging their miners. And this is why it's so important when you're going in to uh, build a Bitcoin mining project, you have to have a site uh, where it's got access to cheap electricity uh, because you're not going to be rolling in profit, but you're going to be the one of the groups, the last man standing, right? So you're going to look at the groups that don't have the most competitive power rates. They're going to be the ones capitulating first because they just can't generate the cash flow to stay in business. I, I still give hash rate like another couple of months. Um, I think that like, you know, based on kind of the the terms that people might be paying their, their power agreements on, they could be on like net 30 terms. And so maybe they're holding out like 30 days and, and like they don't have to pay for their electricity until the end of the month. And so they're like waiting to see if number goes up and then they can mine some coins um, or set on their treasury then um, rather than having to shut off if it doesn't make sense. But we're, we're very close. <laughs> this is the part where it's really tricky, right? Because um, historically, the Bitcoin mining network or the price really doesn't care what your hosting rates are, right? Um, if we go back to the like the bare bottom of the last cycle, so this is November and December of 2018, uh, mining economics at the time were generating about 55 or even $50 a megawatt hour. So if you had a miner plugged in, you were only making five cents per kilowatt hour. There are a lot of facilities, a lot of players out there that have costs that are above that threshold, right? They're operating at five or six cents or 50 or $60 megawatt, $60 megawatt hour. It's really strange too, because uh, what's different from the last cycles, you, you do have a lot of inflation. You have this massive macroeconomic change on the kind of the new baseline of power costs. So we really don't know where the new bottom is. Um, but once again, it's I think one thing we can agree on is the people that are less competitive, that have higher electrical rates, they're going to be the first ones capitulating and unplugging. What you'll start seeing here in the next few months, or at least in the next half year, is the people that are unplugging. Uh, I don't even know if someone's going to come in and bail them out, but there will be some very aggressive, hostile takeovers, acquisitions, et cetera. And I think that's going to be really exciting. Are there any... Bitcoin miners right now who are running profitably. So let, let's say let's take a sample size of ten Bitcoin miners. Eight of them are profitable. Half of them are profitable. Maybe one or two out of the ten are profitable. What is what? What do the numbers look like right now? I think it there's it really depends on first how you define profitability um, and like are you looking at it just as margin? Are you looking at like also depreciation? Are you also including like SGNA expenses? So there's a lot of different ways that you could kind of look at like 
defining profitability. So it's not really like that straightforward. <laughs> and then, you know, you really have to look at each individual operation because every miner is built so differently, like depending on what their model is. Do they own infrastructure? Do they have, you know, outstanding uh, liabilities on that infrastructure? Like how much debt do they have? What are their monthly operational expenses? Like how big is their team, et cetera. So there's just a lot of inputs, I would say. I would rather look at it like on a cost basis. And I think, Kevin, I, you would probably have a little bit more insight into this as well, but like 22.5 is like the price that we've modeled is where the majority of miners are feeling a lot of pain and or having to look at, at shutting down operations. But then again, like, you know, the data set that we're working with is definitely not perfect. Um, so there's there's definitely a long way to go towards um, transparency and, and costs and you know, the data set that we're being, that we've received is also like, you know, people maybe are looking at margin. Some people are including depreciation. So um, it's, it's definitely not perfect. Yeah. It's, it's really tough to give like a kind of a high level haircut of what the, how many miners are quote unquote cash flow positive. Uh, but I would say maybe it's like eight out of eight or nine um, out of the 10 miners. And the nuance is going to be how, how over levered are they? What is, what is their debt obligations? Eight or nine are losing money or eight or nine, no, are, eight or nine are still, still profitable. Still profitable. Right? Okay. But they're barely hanging on. They're just not, yeah. they're not, they're not making fistful money. They're certainly not adding Bitcoin into their balance sheet to hold long-term. Um, where it gets trickier then is, okay, um, these miners, uh, they're dependent on the price state at where they are. And a lot of them actually have a very mixed fleet. So the, the profitable miners are not, are not only those that have um, cheaper electricity, they're those that actually have the newer generation machines, right? So you have uh, miners out there that haven't either haven't refreshed their fleet um, or they're just running older generation equipment, right? So those will start capitulating quicker than some of the newer gen equipment as well. And then the other last piece is how much debt they have on the books. So in addition to just having to pay the electrical bills, how much do they have to pay for their liabilities? I would not want to be running... <laughs> I would not want to run a Bitcoin miner. This sounds very, this sounds very tricky <laughs> to forecast all this stuff out. Um, and let's play this out a little uh, further. So I have a couple of maybe like second order implication questions that come out of this. The first is if you're basically defaulting on a lot of your purchase orders to the manufacturers, does that mean the the manufacturers like maybe a micro BT or a Bitmain become in, tr in trouble or, or they're so well capitalized and have so much money that they'll be completely fine? Their margins are so wide that I have absolutely no fear at all. And like if you look at where that, I mean, obviously like as technology <laughs> changes be just fine. In, in like different, yeah, they maybe they have to source like different component parts at, at different manufacturers. Like, you know, they're using resistors from a few different places and maybe like one resistor is more expensive than the other or whatever. Um, but like overall, if you look at the levels that they've sold machines at, like they used to sell them at a thousand dollars a machine, less than a thousand dollars a machine. And if you look at where they're selling them, like, I feel very confident that they're doing fine. Um, <laughs> and they're, they're gonna, like most people, like when you order machines, you have to put a deposit down. My bet is that they've already covered their margin with a deposit, um, if I had to guess. Yeah, so I, I love that you brought this up because I think one of the true signs of like actual capitulation across the market is when the manufacturers are feeling the pain. And right now they certainly aren't, right? They're still selling at very frothy margins. Didn't they, didn't, wasn't Bitmain feeling the pain back in like 2019? Oh, maybe that wasn't actually financial pain. I think that was more like they had human. Yeah, in-house uh, fighting, yeah. In-house, in in-house pain. Yeah, yeah. got yeah. it. Um, what about the price of Bitcoin? What are the second order implications if all of these miners, okay, so you've got all these purchase orders that you have to pay for. You've got uh, billions of dollars worth of debt. You say, holy shit, let's start selling more Bitcoin. Uh, more and more Bitcoin starts getting sold off into the market. 
the the Twitter narrative is that okay, this really hurts the price of Bitcoin. What is the maybe actual impact on the price of Bitcoin here? I also really like this question too because I think the irony is it, the impact of Bitcoin miners selling is very tiny. Like, big, yeah. so the new amount of bitcoins issued to the miners every day is about nine hundred bitcoins a day, and that number is only dropping every halving, right? So the amount of sell pressure from miners is very tiny. But what happens is when you have these narratives, it's the sentiment and the narratives that kind of really drive the price action. It's like, oh, the miners are selling, then we should be selling too. And I think that is actually what causes causes a real sell pressure and kind of the market sentiment. I was trying to do some men- some mental math on on, <laughs> right, on like what small percentage of the market and the volume that actually is, but I wasn't able to do the mental math in time. Yeah, it's, for, uh, it's 144 <laughs> blocks a day and you only get 6.25 yeah. Bitcoins a block. So you get 900 Bitcoins a day. That's what miners make. So they're selling 100% of what they're making. That's that's a very small volume. Yeah. Is this the end of, um, do you think this is largely the end of like ASIC backed loans? Right, ASICs have such a high beta to a highly volatile asset, and I'm assuming no. you guys are both shaking your head. But I'm going to finish the question, which is <laughs> you're, you're I'm just asking, picturing is this, the, is this the end of investor greediness? Of course. Not. No, I'm just no. I, I guess I'm just like like what does the process, the liquidation process for an ASIC look like? Like if I if I capitalize a loan, maybe I don't fully understand how this works actually, but like if I capitalize a loan and my uh, my collateral is like a bunch of ASICs, and then I like can't pay that back. And then Cassie's like, all right, well, give me your ASICs. It like, I'm, I, I imagine it's actually a total pain in the ass to go collect a bunch of ASICs and yeah. go like find a site. To, so like what <laughs> just seems like a, tr- a tricky process. Um, it's definitely a tricky process, which is why you try not to write underwrite loans that you think might default so that you don't have to go and repo the machine. So it's like really the first step in like, <laughs> what a concept. Strategy, <laughs> what a concept. Right? <laughs> not um, yeah. Although I will say that yeah. there are a number of folks in the States who, um, you know, offer my ASIC backed loans that like they actually structure it as like a bankruptcy deal from the get-go so like not like i mean it is they do hope that the person defaults right um and that's definitely something that we'll we'll pick up i imagine um kind of like as we get into this the capitulation and and we start to see the iceberg tip but um yeah at at a high level i I don't think that this is the end of asic back loans i think that this is the first step of many um in in the learning curve and like this was a huge huge lesson in terms of like how to analyze risk and how quickly things can change and how volatile the space still is. Um, And like to throw your models out the window and prepare for a doomsday event Um, and then underwrite your loan as if you are prepared for that doomsday event and your loan will be fine in said doomsday event. Um, That's really the only way for for this product to work. Um, And it's going to take iterations. I think like for Foundry and for Galaxy, like it has been a bit easier for us than some of the other players in the industry because we mine and have a very good understanding of like the economics ourselves um, and have seen and, and been around the block a time or two. So we've seen how quickly things have changed. Um, but, you know, not everyone had that experience. And, and there's definitely some some learning there, learning by learning by doing is what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I think experience is a key word. I don't think ASIC back loans are going to disappear. Uh, I think it's going to be the underwriting is going to be very different. And to Cassie's point, I think we had the benefit of experience on our side where, um, at least I can speak from my, uh, our group, where we stopped financing last November. Like we we saw the warning signs. It doesn't mean we came out completely unscathed. There are some pains, right, uh, across our loan book, but it's it's much lighter than some of the other groups out there. And we had the benefit of minor financing has been around a long time, actually. It's just been around in China, right? So this is yeah. the first time Babel Finance has been really pushed. 
right? Right? Like they're infamous for doing this, right? So um, having made these mistakes in the past, we kind of learned from them, and it's part of being a yeah. miner. Let's talk about M and A. Um, ooh, where to take this? Well, I'm thinking of my of, of of the question. I'll I'll toss the easy question at you, Cassie. Does Sam Bankman Fried and FTX acquire more or less than two two miners? <laughs> you know, um, I like the question. I'm, I wonder if he'll he'll break into this space. Um, <laughs> I'm actually pretty bearish on MA, to be honest. Um, I think that like most of the miners worth like acquiring and buying outright are actually doing quite fine. Um, the miners that you want to be acquiring, um, that you want to like, you know, merge with are the ones that have a low cost power contract in place over a long term. They have new gen machines, like they, they don't have tons of liabilities um, and or they have a strong and healthy balance sheet. And if they have those things then they're probably going to come out of this okay. Um, in terms of like acquisitions, people will acquire what, you know, is essentially liquidated, but I don't think companies themselves will be like bought out. There may be like, I'm sure that there's. Gonna so be you'll, like, you'll have a fire sale on like on ASICs on or something like that, yeah, but you're not just going to have like, et cetera, or, yeah. okay, got it. Got it. I guess like, yeah, when you, when you put it like that, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's like, why consolidate maybe. And it's like the only reason to consolidate is maybe, maybe if you have a super valuable mining site or you have a really, really, really nice long-term 10-year contract on electricity. I don't really know how electricity contracts work, but like if, if you have those in place, but aside from that, like you don't really, right? there's not, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Kevin, would you agree with that? Yeah. I think my prediction would be zero. So I think Sam's already made his bet. I think this is public. Uh, he's already invested in mining groups. And I think they're going to be the ones that kind of he's made his bets in mining already. And he's taking a stab for the, at it the frantic text from Kevin being like, edit that out. Get that, <laughs> get that out. No, I'm kidding. names, though, you know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, I, I uh, FTX has dabbled with mining in the past or Alameda has. Yeah. And it just it wasn't fun for them. They were part of the yeah. kind of band casualties. So. Yeah. Let me, let me ask just the bigger question, Kevin, do you think there's going to be, would you agree with Cassie that there probably actually won't be that much consolidation in M&A or you think they're, you're maybe more uh, pro M&A, pro consolidation? I, th- I think a lot of it depends on the market, right? So if, if money economics improve and then the capital markets uh, once again are very frothy and healthy again, uh, people are rewarded sometimes uh, not in a healthy manner to acquire as much as possible to boost their hash rate figures and their Bitcoin production numbers, so to speak. Um, so there may be some deals there in that scenario, but I think the more likely one is like certain distressed assets. So not necessarily buying the facility and operations outright, because you, just, you don't want to inherit all the issues that of a site that just failed, like Cassie was saying. But the miners, right, they still work at any other site, assuming they're in good condition. Uh, transformers and a lot of electrical equipment, that can be repurposed and reused at other sites. So I think the equipment is actually the really interesting aspect to it. Um, thinking through something in real time here, so this might be a bad question, but could you guys ever see, all right, so if, could you guys ever see an OPEC for Bitcoin, right? Like the goal of OPEC is to kind of coordinate and unify the the, the price of, 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 uh, of petroleum and basically ensure the stabilization of oil markets to secure this like efficient economic system of, of petroleum, right? Could you ever see something like that in, in Bitcoin mining? I, I would go the opposite end. I, I would say Bitcoin mining has failed if it's gone that direction because it's a, it's supposed to be an ultra competitive decentralized network where if you aren't cost competitive or you aren't running efficiently or competitively, you are supposed to get wiped out. So the protocol in the, in, this is what's, what I love about the space. The protocol is actually working exactly as intended, 
right? Like we actually experienced multiple doomsday type scenarios, right? One thing I think isn't addressed enough was Bitcoin, and especially the mining network, survived the nation state attack. China banned over 50%. It was actually like 60% of the network. And the difficulty adjustment took that in stride. And after two adjustments, we're situation all normal again, right? So um, I think when I hear OPEC and when I hear like if there's going to be something like time for Bitcoin, that just sounds to me like collusion. It sounds to me like you're, you're, you're removing a lot of the natural market incentives that make Bitcoin so competitive. So I hope it doesn't go in that direction. I also would add in like that, you know, the people who are around and like know that they're going to be, have been around for a while, know that they're going to continue to be around the ones who like have built their operations in the way that's like very sustainable. They are like very pro this cleansing. Um, they're excited for like some of the froth to get wiped out and for the people who came in and, and were a little bit over in over their skis to get wiped out um, because like that makes it that much more competitive for them. And so for like a, a larger governing body to come in and like try to shake things up, you know, you'd have the majority of Bitcoin miners, like the majority of the hash rate that would be against that um, because it's ultimately like net bad for them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Kevin, I was smiling as you were just saying that because when you came, I think we had dinner in September of 2021 and you were like, you expressed the same thing. You're like, yeah, I was like, China, like, what do you think? You're like, the, the system is working. It is working. Like China <laughs> shut down Bitcoin and it is actually, and, and it's all going as it should. The protocol is working. So I'm glad that a year later you still feel the same way. Um, Bitcoin takes no prisoners. <laughs> and <laughs> takes no prisoners. That is true. Let's uh, let's start to wrap it up with just maybe a couple um, final outcomes and like changing industry thoughts. And I'd, I'd just be curious to get all of your takes on this. Actually, I have a couple just like hot topic issues that I want to hear your guys' response to. One is, um, Cassie, if I could throw this to you, like re- renewable Bitcoin mining. Um, I feel like the, nar- the narrative around uh, Bitcoin is bad for the environment was maybe a 2021 thing that caught a lot of the kind of normie mainstream media uh, attention and now it's kind of died down, but like renewable Bitcoin miner interest yeah. and expansion, is that you growing? Know, it, it's funny what's, how what's you mentioned on? that like the cycle of the new cycle of that was essentially the same cycle of like the capital markets, right? Like that was, that was a narrative that was really strong when the capital markets were really strong. And now that they've dried up, that narrative has kind of died. Um, and there are, occasionally it still gets picked up, but like, you know, by and large, it's just a very uneducated opinions um, that don't really understand how energy at large works or how the grid works. Um, and so that's just a, a frustrating piece of, of that whole narrative. Um, but, you know, that narrative will come back. Um, you know, we, we have groups that are focused on preparing for that, but um, I expect that that will come back full swing when the, the capital markets open back up. Yeah, I think uh, I'm. I yeah, I'm hopeful that maybe um, one thing that happens from. I don't know if I actually want to go down this rabbit hole. Like I was going to talk about Dutch farmers and ammonia and nit- nitrogen oxide <laughs> and people. <laughs> what, it, it comes down to what people value and people realizing that like there are some. But uh, maybe and we don't go down that rabbit hole. The reality of this. like renewable generation <laughs> is that there's just not enough renewables for everyone to be using renewable energy, and that is something that a lot of people fail yeah. to realize. And so you're then offsetting with RECs or carbon credits, and to me that's just fake. Like, you know, whatever, like you want to play the optics game for capital markets, for your investors, that's fine. Um, I get it. I understand that. But at the end of the day, like you're not really solving the problem. Um, And so to me, like, it's just like frustrating that it gets shoved down our throat. And most of the people shoving that narrative down our throats are the ones that don't actually understand what RECs or carbon credits are and like what generation, you know, mix actually looks like. 
Yeah. Uh, it's funny. I don't see much news around how like Germany moving back into uh, opting out, opting for coal over nuclear is uh, so bad for the environment. Yeah. Right. I don't see uh, <laughs> I don't see any <laughs> no. of that going on right now. Um, let's move past before I get into too much trouble from things that I say here. Uh, Russia, <laughs> electricity, energy, like how does what's going on in Russia um, and like rising energy costs, how does that impact um, how how Bitcoin miners basically plan for their business and the contracts they, that they do? How do you guys think about just rising energy costs in general? So I think the big change this time around is um, I love when miners give us their pitch decks where they talk about their projects and they're like, oh, historically, energy rates have always been at this level. It's never gone this high. And every, anytime someone says that, it's like they've automatically jinxed it. That it's, we're going to set a new high for electrical rates. Um, but the but the main takeaway from like this new, and it could be a new paradigm shift for like energy rates are high for the next two years, is people are now starting to hedge, um, hedge out all their power. And I think Bitcoin miners are also getting more sophisticated with how they can approach their PPAs or power purchase agreements, right? So they're not just buying off a of grid, open day spot market, right? Next day spot market for power rates. They're looking to lock in their power rates, even if they have to pay a little bit of a premium, that removes that kind of upside risk. Um, the other rabbit hole that we can kind of briefly touch on but not go down is uh, this is where it's really fascinating where a lot of more of the original kind of crypto anarchists, uh, OG Bitcoiners, they'll say, no, we have to control our own power. We have to go behind the meter, right? We're not going to take whatever the grid offers us. We're going to generate our own power. And maybe that that is going to have a lot of value down the road. Maybe not this cycle, but the next or the following one where it's going to be the energy producers that are the most competitive Bitcoin miners because they control their own costs. Does that, um, maybe I should ask this in the M&A part, but I'll ask it here, which is, do you guys see that, um, do you guys see the traditional like oil and gas players and like energy folks getting into getting into Bitcoin mining and maybe making some either through acquisitions or just, just their own uh, we've, strategies? I think mean, we've already seen a lot of like traditional energy players who have like left that industry and come in and, and join this one. Um, you know, we've started to see that. I, I definitely think that energy players will be a part of this next wave um, and that's something that they're starting to explore. And I also think that like rising power costs are going to be kind of like an expediter for that, right? Like they're also feeling pain. Um, so they're looking for additional ways to, to generate revenue, um, additional clients as well. So I, I was very fortunate to uh, have worked on the Greenwich project. Um, for me, I got to kind of live it firsthand, see it firsthand. Just all the incredible synergies are naturally there for an energy producer that's behind the meter to be Bitcoin mining. So when it sucks to be selling power, you want to be Bitcoin mining and vice versa. When power is great, you're incentivized to shut down your miners. Um, so I think it's a very natural progression. The industry is headed that way just very quietly. You've seen some headlines and some uh, PR slip out here and there with like ConocoPhillips with their kind of pilot programs and et cetera. Um, I, I, I'm sure more of the big names are going to kind of come out publicly in the coming uh, years and cycles that they themselves are going to be looking to do Bitcoin mining. Will this be like small things like they've got like gas flaring and they put some of that excess energy into mining or like you think big mining initiatives? I think it'll, I think bigger mining. Really? I think people yeah. will be take small steps first. I think the newsworthy articles will probably be like, you know, they've already been mining and they feel like they haven't figured out enough to like have a large operation and that's what they're announcing publicly. But I think they'll take small steps before they take big ones. Yeah. And I think got bigger it. is where we're headed. And I guess another key thing we can kind of very quickly point out is, um, it's, it's the gigawatt projects that always kind of scare me off. Like, um, it's actually funny. There, there are sizes and projects that are too big for Bitcoin mining initially, right? We talked about how expensive the CapEx was. 
the CapEx is very expensive on the infrastructure side, but it's that much more expensive for the ASICs. So if you're telling me that you have a half gigawatt project or a gigawatt project you want to bring online right away and you need ASICs to fill all that, I'm like, this is nonsense. So um, a lot of like the the large nuclear projects people talk about, this massive gigawatt, multi-gigawatt nuclear site, they should be doing Bitcoin mining. It's actually too big for Bitcoin, at least for, for now. Um, I think it's smaller scale projects, the pilot projects and the medium sized uh, peaker plants like a Greenwich, uh, like a 100, 200 megawatt site. Those are the ones I think you should be keeping an eye on. Um, I think maybe last question, second to last question here is just um, like pool distribution. I want to get your guys' take on. Kevin, do you, I think Foundry, I know much more maybe about what's going on with like Lido and ETH staking actually right now, not as much about Bitcoin mining. Um, what so this honestly might be a, another fifth grade level question coming at you, but I think my understanding of like the pool distributions like Foundry has like twenty percent, Amp Pool has like fifteen percent, F two has like fifteen percent, Binance has like ten or fifteen percent. Is that uh, consolidating to so like maybe what's what's the state of like pool distribution in let's say three to five years from now? A couple big players, more distribution. What what does that look like? All right. So the first thing is the pool business sucks. So there's like little to no money to be made in the pool business. So I don't see that many new players coming in. Uh, what What is the pool business? Sorry, I, this, this might be a whole nother topic for another episode. But like, what is the pool <laughs> business in, in a paragraph? <laughs> the pool business is every day praying that our pool has good luck, that we mine enough Bitcoins to pay our customers. Um, otherwise, we're paying out of our own balance sheet. Um, <laughs> But, but jokes aside, like we treated it as an ecosystem play and, and, and essentially it's our donation to the space, right? We, we knew that it was really important for to address the narrative that China controlled mining. We didn't think China was going to ban mining, right? So we set out to build a pool two years ago because 90% of the global hash rate was concentrated in China. Uh, and you did see that China tried shutting down these pools. And for a while, miners couldn't connect to the front end of these pools. And some of these pools did go down, right? There was a centralization risk there. Now, Bitcoin did work itself around that, but part of that also was our pool coming online and having a reputable pool where people can trust that their payouts are what they expect and it's reliable. Um, I do think there may be a couple more Western players that pop up over time, um, but I don't think there's going to be too many players. I think there may be some more consolidation here and there. It's just a really, really tough business. It's a, it's a relationship business, so you have to have money to get that started um, and then you know maintain the relationships. But it's been a really good relationship business for all the pools who've been around and are doing it. Um, they've been able to like expand and have tons of business lines. Foundry's a great example of that. Um, they're doing tons of things in the space right now, which is really cool to see. Um, Kevin, I actually had a question for you kind of on, on like hash rate as we started to see some kind of come offline. Um, and looking at like some of the smaller pools, have you had customers who are at smaller pools that are now coming to you saying like, you know, it was just getting a little bit riskier for us at the size of the pool and like they're, they're redirecting their hash rate towards you guys or, or, you know, have you guys seen, like have you had customers come to you, um, that new customers in the last couple of months? Yeah, that's, that's actually a really fascinating question. And I think, yes, we have seen that. Um, I think they're, they're, there's a very wide range of Bitcoin miners uh, there are some that love going towards smaller pools because they, they are rooting for more distribution at the pool level. Um, and once again, this is all optics, right? In the past, Bitmain has had over 50% of the global hash rate from a pool standpoint. They just had it in two different pool pool brands. They had Ampool and BTC.com, right? Uh, no one really cared. Uh, and we don't actually own the hash rate. If we're ever up to anything nefarious, people can just move their hash rate off instantly, right? So with that kind of disclaimer there, um, We've noticed that some miners out there, and this is actually very common with Chinese miners, 
they couldn't care less about centralization. I mean, given that most of them from CCP and whatnot, right? Uh, they actually prefer whoever's the top pool because they view it as, oh, they're at least going to be solvent to make me sure I have my payouts the next day. Um, but what we have seen changes because so much hash rate is gravitated toward North America, it's less so about who's the biggest size, it's who's the most reliable, who's the most professional. Uh, as far as we have our SOC audits, right? Um, we also have a reputable brand and being a DCG subsidiary. Uh, and um, I like to go to different parties and go eat free food along with you, right? So um, I think it is a relationship business and kind of the the perks of knowing who you're working with and having someone you can trust. That's the first thing people look, look at. And I don't think the miners really care so much about this pool is X size or X percentage of the network. I'm going to, Cassie, great question there. Um, last question for both of you is, uh, what what is what are the signs that you're looking for, Kevin? You said we're at the tip of the iceberg in terms of capitulation. Uh, Cassie, I'd throw throw the, this question to you first. Like, what are the signs of max capitulation in your mind in the Bitcoin mining space? Like, when will you know that we've hit rock bottom? Yeah, um, I don't, it's hard to say a like how you define rock bottom, um, but like basically, <laughs> Cassie, try to time. Cash, t- tell me the when the market yeah. is going to bottom. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So tell me when the bottom is coming. Um, <laughs> no, unfortunately, I'm, I'm hodling all the way up and down with all the other miners, so um, feeling the pain too. But um, you know, I would say like I, you know, the the more people that are coming to us like desperately asking for money, like, hey, can you get on a call in the next hour and talk to me about you know lending against like X, Y, and Z? Hey, like, can you underwrite my whole site? Um, I think like that is going to be very, very telling for us. Um, I would say like the more distressed deals that we see that are coming across the de- our, our desk, um, the more liquidation. I think really like when the purchase orders start hitting like the Luxors and the the procurement providers of the world um, in North America specifically uh, will be a, a very, very telling sign. Yeah, I think um, it's it's impossible to know when, uh, if, if we will hit the bottom, but the bottoms historically have looked like uh, hash rate and difficulty dropping in a serious manner, right? Uh, in this was November and December of 2018, there were like five to 10% difficulty drops back then when prices got too low and miners had to shut off. Um, and the next key point, and we touched on it earlier, was um, if the manufacturers start capitulating or if they start feeling the pain. I don't think they're going to capitulate, but if they start having to fire sale their miners um, at severe discounts. And right now, we're nowhere close to that. Awesome. Cassie, Kevin, any last thoughts as we wrap this up? Um, no last thoughts for me. Uh, you know, I, I think, I guess one last thought. Um, you know, some of this was pretty bearish. I think that I'd just like to reiterate that long term, I'm, I'm very bullish. Uh, and like Bitcoin's going nowhere. Mining's not going anywhere either. Um, so we, we have a bright future ahead. Just a, a couple of, of roadblocks in the way. The protocol is working as intended. <laughs> I love it. That's a great way to end, guys. This was uh, Cassie. Kevin, we will put uh, links to both your Twitters in the show notes and uh, some other resources. This has been an awesome conversation. And uh, thank you for helping us, uh, us fifth graders, understand what is going on in the Bitcoin market. So, Yeah. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, guys.